Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey everybody, this is the Soundtrack Series, stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network. I'm Dana Rossi. Oh, did you catch that? What was different about my intro, usual listeners? You guys are smart. I'm not even going to patronize you by being like, was it this? Was it this? You know what it was. We are now officially a part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Soundtrack Series couple of months ago, was acquired to be part of the new podcast network, Infinite Guest, under American Public Media. So now not only, you know, we belong to the network and we're distributed by them in American Public Media and thrilled does not begin to describe the state of my emotions right now, jumping up and down on my bed, eating popcorn. What image is that? Is that Home Alone when he's like jumping up and down on the bed and, you know, eating popcorn and it's falling all over the place? Because who cares? Nobody's home. That's me except sub out popcorn and sub in just frosting right from the tub. That's how excited I am that we're joining this incredible network. And with that, I would imagine, since American public media has a little bit of reach, (laughs) wouldn't you say, I would imagine we have some new listeners. So I thought that with us joining this new network and with us maybe having some new listeners and because when I was in kindergarten, maybe the only good thing my kindergarten teacher said to my mom about me was that I was a a one-woman welcome wagon to the new students. I don't know. Do you think she was calling me slutty? Because the new students that year were boys. So she could have been. But what her point was, was that I was welcoming to new students and I didn't ostracize. So I will carry that over into adulthood and welcome all of you new listeners to this here corner of the internet and what we do here. So soundtrack series is stories about songs. People telling stories about the songs that are significant to them, how that song somehow, in some way, provided the soundtrack to a moment in their lives. We do the show live Mostly here in, in New York City. We started at a, a cafe in Astoria in the in the Queensboro and from there moved on to Le Poisson Rouge in Manhattan. We've also done shows at the Museum of the Moving Image and then we've done them in different cities. We've done them uh, soundtrack series in Philadelphia, the Tin Angel at Latage, and in Austin, Texas at the Long Center for the Performing Arts in their studio space there and at the North Door. We're going back to the North Door actually in January. So we get around. But then we take the stories from those live shows and put them right here on this podcast. If you're a new listener, maybe you're wondering how did it start? Maybe you're wondering when I'm going to shut up. The answer to that second thing is in about seven minutes. But how did the podcast start? That first question, well, it came out of the live show, which started in February of 2010. A couple of months prior to that, I had gotten the idea for this. And I love how I make it sound like this is a totally new idea, which is completely bullshit because everybody in some way, connects music to memory. That's just what people do. But I thought, what if there was some sort of show where people came and they talked about the personal memories and they connect to certain songs? And I wasn't sure, though, if everybody did that at the level that I just sort of did that and always connected my memories to music. And then, this is like middle of 2009, Michael Jackson died. And everybody on Facebook was doing just that, connecting memories to his music and to his albums. One I, I'll always remember was just somebody said to someone else on Facebook, do you remember we bought the album Bad 
But it was the middle of summer, and it was so hot, and you only had one room in your house that was air-conditioned. That was your bedroom, and so that's where we listened to it, in this one room that had air conditioning. And I thought, yeah, everybody does do this. Let's do this show. And so I did. And it's been going for almost five years now. The podcast is almost as old as the show itself, though it was certainly not in this format when I started because I had no idea that it was maybe not a good idea to just take whatever recording and in whatever state it was in, not edit it at all, not talk during it at all, and just put that on the internet. I'd like to think I've grown. But that's what this show has been. We've had themes. We did a prom theme. People came and told stories about proms. We've had a losing your virginity theme where people told stories about how oddly music factors into that moment in your sexual life. We had a decade themes. We did a 70s show, an 80s show, a 90s show. At the 90s show, Kennedy came and told stories from her recently published book. She was amazing. And speaking of that, we have had amazing guests on this show. Craig Finn of The Hold Steady, Kathy Valentine, bassist for The Go-Go's, Ken Calais, who produced Rumors for Fleetwood Mac. That was a huge nerdy get for me. He also produced Tusk and Mirage, but Rumors. We did an all-hip-hop show where prominent people in the hip-hop industry, and not just artists, all corners of the industry came and talked about their time working in hip-hop, how they helped to build it. So that's what we do. And then we take the stories and we put them online in this podcast. And it's so perfect to be joining a network called Infinite Guest because the guests can be infinite. I used to be so worried and, and obsessed and maybe not justifiably so, but that I was never getting what I thought were enough audience members at the live shows. I would obsess over this. With, with weather and was it going to rain three weeks from now when I had a show on that day and then if it would it was like just the whole universe was conspiring against me only me because I was the only person who would have a show that night and people weren't going to come was there another show that night that more people were going to go to was this outstanding influence going to make there be more or less people at the show and I would obsess over that and then it would color how I thought a show would go until my boyfriend pointed out to me that you can only ever, even if you pack a house, you can only ever fit a fixed number of bodies into a room in New York or in Austin or in Philadelphia. Whether it's like 90 people, you can fit 90 people into this room ever before the firemen's come. But to get a podcast out there, that's the biggest room there is with no capacity where you could have dot, 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 an infinite number of guests. So is it a little corny, that backstory plus joining a network called Infinite Guests? Maybe, but it is pretty perfect. And so we're honored to be joining this network. And there's a lot of other great shows, great podcasts on Infinite Guest. In fact, one is called You Must Remember This. And this week, the host, Karina Longworth, is continuing the show series on the women in the life of infamous aviator filmmaker Howard Hughes. And this time, it's about his professional and personal relationship with Jane Russell. It began in 1940 when uh, Howard Hughes just randomly pulled a photograph of 19-year-old Jane Russell out of a pile, and that relationship then lasted for most of her film career. So that is what's on You Must Remember This on InfiniteGuest.org this week. Check that out. Now, another thing about what we do on this podcast is you'll hear a story about a song from one of our live shows at some point. But I, I usually do this kind of monologue in the beginning and anything I feel like talking about. And I got to say, today it's this. Today, somebody on Facebook posted a video of Jessica Lange on the new season of American Horror Story Freak Show performing Bowie's Life on Mars. And I combusted right there on my couch. It is amazing because this is the thing. For me, just personally, whether you care about this or not, Life on Mars is my favorite David Bowie song. There's this natural build to it that I love. 
that almost lends itself to anybody performing it can be good. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second where I my mom always used to say about American Idol and she would be like, oh, so and so doing Bridge Over Troubled Water was just so great. And I'm like, mom, that's not the person singing it. That's the fact that Bridge Over Troubled Water is written with a natural build and natural dramatics so that anyone singing it will sound good. There's I think there's a difference. There is dramatically written music that is going to just lend itself to making the listener feel because that's the way the music is written and arranged and someone's voice who can just do that. I always felt that way about Amy Winehouse because the melodies she would sing are actually pretty basic, but it's her voice. Whatever her voice infuses into those melodies, that's what's making you feel. But on the flip side, a song like Bridge Over Troubled Water or Life on Mars has these natural builds that pull emotion out. And so you would think that Life on Mars could be performed by anyone, and it would be great, except on Barbra Streisand's 1974 album, Butterfly, where the cover was a stick of butter and a fly on it. I don't know what that woman was doing, and she covers Life on Mars. And again, I mean, there is. There's the natural build and the dramatics, so it should sound great, but I don't know. It's just, and I'm the hugest Streisand fan, but man, she ruined that song for a while. And I I will readily admit that in high school, I used to try to sing along to her version because I would try to sing along to her version of anything because I thought that was going to teach me how to sing. But yeah, it just was too straight, if that makes any sense. It was too perfect. Life on Mars shouldn't sound perfect. And so to hear Jessica Lange do it, who, not that she's a bad singer, but I wouldn't call her the vocal artiste that Barbara Streisand is, but she put the song over better and in an imperfect way the way that song should be done and the way they do it in this clip was so reminiscent to me of rose's turn in gypsy where it's all in her head and then she's bowing this is gypsy where she's bowing at the end to applause that's not happening but that in this clip she's performing this song and there's a longing and an aching and a sadness and freaks around her that then aren't there at the end and just chills internally too which can be pretty uncomfortable so i have i have high hopes for this season of american horror story a show that's hit or miss sometimes but i have to say with music with an asylum company number of the name game and stevie nicks showing up in the coven season and now jessica lang doing life on mars with music that show is always a hit
I did. I just did that to you. I am readily admitting I just did that to you because I needed you to hear. You've heard David Bowie's version, and I want you to go find Jessica Lange's version on your own, but you needed to hear that Streisand version to know what I'm talking about a little bit. It's just too perfect. You know what I mean? Okay, enough about this because I really could go on about it forever. Now, our story for today is from Philadelphia legend, storytelling master, R. Eric Thomas and his story about Ray of Light by Madonna and how putting his headphones on and listening to that always helps him to revisit a very special friend. I used to tell this story uh, all the time on second dates. Um, like before I started telling stories, like dates were where I told all my stories because like dates are like a captive audience. Um, <laughs> like literally, like, I mean like literally, I mean I, I, you can't leave. And so I would just like tell stories. And I didn't really understand that like you can't really hold somebody hostage just because like, you know, there's a narrative going on. But like my, I thought, I thought Taken was a romantic comedy. So I just don't understand exactly how. I, so I would just, I would go on these second dates and I would, uh, I would tell these stories and I would tell this story uh, specifically on second dates. I'm especially good at first dates because I give all my great stories there and I'm pretty good at second dates and I can tell this story and I don't actually go on a lot of third dates so it's possible that I'm not actually good at second dates and it's possible that this story is why. I've never told this to a group of people so I'm going to pretend that it's just you and me and that we're on a second date and that I'm telling you this story. In high school, I went to this really nice high school in Baltimore, and it's, I, I, I used to be like, oh, you know, it was, it was a nice high it was, it was fucking nice. And my parents spent a lot of money on this high school. There was 82 acres of forest land. There was a stream that ran through it. I rode horses for credit. Uh, <laughs> It was awesome. When I was in eighth grade, a new ninth grader started, and her name was Electra Bino, which, yes, which is amazing. She was new in ninth grade, and we didn't get, we got like maybe one or two new students. And this was a super small school, and we'd all been uh, with each other for years, and we'd all tried to furtively date each other in middle school. And so Electra showed up, and she was new, and I was interesting. And she had all these secrets, and she wasn't looking to divulge them. She was quiet in a place where everyone was loud and expressive, and so that was interesting. And she was black. She was one of four black students in her class, and I was one of eight black students in my class. And so I, I felt like we owed some, each other some sort of camaraderie. And I don't know like, what that would entail. Uh, like maybe like just going, sort of giving like, like a look or like a high five or like a, the secret black handshake uh, that, that you do. Electra and I didn't do any of that. She was just sort of like this mystery. And she didn't really integrate herself into the small black community. Sometimes we would all sit at uh, the same table in the cafeteria, all the black kids. And Electra never joined us. And I found that a little bit odd. I joined the, the Black Awareness Club in high school, uh, which was, a room of 11 people. And I don't remember exactly what we did. We had like a Black Awareness Day where I think we just had like speakers talk about like, you know slavery happened, right? Um, <laughs> but like for the other like 12 months or 11 months, we would just be like just sitting there like, yo, I'm real black. And other people would be like, yo, I'm real black too. And like the one white girl, <laughs> the one white girl would be like, you guys are black, no offense. <laughs> Electra uh, never joined the Black Awareness Club. And one time I, I just asked her, I was like, why didn't you join the club? And she said, because I don't want to, which I found fascinating. <laughs> Eventually, she, uh, we, we got to be friends. And she told me about her name. And I asked her, I was like, oh, is it from you know, Greek mythology or Greek you know, literature? And she's like, no, uh, my mom heard it on a bus in New York, and she liked it. And I was like, that's the most New York thing I've ever fucking heard. 
She talked a lot about her mom. She had lived in New York for her whole life. Her mom, she lived with a single mom, and her mom had uh, passed away um, recently, and so she had to move down to Baltimore and live with her uncle and her uncle's uh, wife and uh, their new baby. Um, and she talked about it, and she liked the baby, and she liked the uncle, but she felt out of place. And as she talked, I started to pinpoint these little stars in the constellation of sadness within her. I guess you could say I liked her. She was tall and, and kind of awkward. She had this, uh, this really high-pitched voice that was also gravelly. She had like, light skin, like mine, um, and like kind of big, buggy eyes. She never wore makeup. She wore jeans and a, a, a tight, uh, thin sweater every day. We would talk about her in the Black Awareness Club because she was this mystery that didn't want to be a part of us. And she wasn't like, no, but this is like Atani private school in, in Baltimore. Like none of us were real black, but we were just like, oh, really? She doesn't think she's black. Who does she think she is? <laughs> but outside the club, I'd look at her ambling down the hall and I'd say, who, who does she think she is? That summer, I, I got a job uh, in the school library uh, doing inventory. Uh, there were two people who got, the, got that position. The other was Electra. And, and I, it was my dream job. It still is my dream job because I fucking love libraries. Like, I love... Or, yes, libraries are so good. And I just got a Kindle, and I feel like I'm betraying all the things that I love. I mean, it's like, it's just easier for my eyes. I'm old, and I can't carry things in my back. My, uh, my tote bag gets so heavy. All the Joan Diddy, oh, side my shoulder problems. But in any case... I was young then, and I loved books. Libraries are just infinite possibility. There are just these universes of stories, of tales, of knowledge. There's so much. I used to go to the library all the time when I was a kid because I was extremely popular. <laughs> and uh, I would go to the Woodlawn Library in Baltimore, and I would load my arms up with books, and then I would go over to the AV section, and I would, buy two, I would borrow two cassettes. It was uh, the uh, Madonna's Immaculate Collection and the soundtrack to Beaches. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, although I, I wasn't gay back then, I was obvious. <laughs> and I would just wear those bitches out. And then I would go to the librarian and be like, uh, yeah, we need to order a new copy of Beaches. And they'd be like, oh, here comes little black Liberace. God bless him. God bless him. Oh, God. I loved libraries. And so getting this job where we just had to, Electra and I just had to, to go through every aisle in our, our school library and scan every single book. And if it was out of place, we had to put it back in the place. It was heaven, because we didn't do any of that. We just talked all summer long. We talked about the O.J. Simpson verdict. We talked about, we talked about the weather. We talked about the other students. Oh, we gossiped like little bitches. We gossiped. <laughs> she talked the most about Madonna, of all things. She was this awkward, nerdy girl, but she loved Madonna. And my interest in Madonna sort of peaked right after Michael Like, Dick Tracy is really where I'm just, I was just like... <laughs> That's my sweet spot. Uh, like, I mean, Steinheim plus Madonna. I was just like, <laughs> anything else is just extra. But Electra was obsessed with Madonna. She was like, she was, an, she had an encyclopedic knowledge of Madonna's career. And like, we would go at lunch. She would get, we would get in her car, and we would speed over to the Towson Town Center, and we would go to the Sam Goody, uh, and we would just stand there in M under Pop and just look at her albums. She was in Evita, I think, around that time, and so sometimes she would just like stare pensively at the Evita poster, and she would just say like, you know, this is going to get her the Oscar. And I was like, I, gr I agree, I agree. She told me once while we were at the mall, she was like, you know, Madonna has a new album coming out. Ray of Light. Uh, Sandra Bernhard introduced her to Gabala, and it's going to change all of our lives. 
And I was like, I agree. I didn't know who Sandra Bernhardt was. I had never heard of Kabbalah, but I was ready to sign up or contribute or convert or whatever it needed to happen. By the time the school year came around, we were inseparable. It, it would be inaccurate to say that we were dating, but we were inseparable regardless. And I was dating a girl from my church at the time, which basically amounted to going to Batman and Robin once and holding hands until our hands got really sweaty. That's my understanding of heterosexuality, just like... <laughs> just watching the worst Batman movie and, and not being able to let go of someone else's sweaty palm. So, and that's why. But as the year went on, the girl from church and I stopped calling each other as much and it got to be springtime. I asked Electra to go to my junior prom with me and Electra asked me to go to her senior prom and it just seemed like obvious that it would happen. I took all my library money and I bought a, uh, rented a town car and went over to her uncle's house and my parents were in a car behind me with like 16 cameras. And I like, I slid this enormous wrist corsage on her wrist. I kind of like in the pictures, like she's just sort of like tilting just a little bit. <laughs> and we went to the prom, which was ironically at a barn. Everyone in the school had so much money and they were like, we should have prom at a barn. <laughs> and they looked like Pinterest today. Like mason jars and Christmas lights strung along the top and benches, and I was just, I walked in. I was like, "Well, this is just ghost. This this is this is some this is bullshit." <laughs> Cut to 15 years later. That's exactly the way my wedding is going to look. <laughs> if you have a barn, holler at a bitch. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, we danced a little bit, although she didn't really like to dance. I didn't, I didn't know how to. We just kind of stood around in the, the garden of the, uh, of the barn. It was prom. It was what prom was supposed to be. She went to Wharton the next year, and we kind of lost contact. Every once in a while, we would instant message each other. Like, the internet was just sort of starting up. I really loved her. Isn't that funny? I, I guess I had suspected that I was gay then, um, as much as you can suspect something that is blatantly obvious to everyone. Um, <laughs> but I loved her. And I don't know why I don't just stop there. But I'm not going to. So March of 98, the uh, Ray of Light, of course, came out. Um, and that was very important. I bought it on the first day. And the French exchange trip occurred. It was supposed to happen the year before, and I was going to go. But then there was some sort of problem with, like, Algerian terrorists or something. And so over the, like, in the intervening time between then and, like, May, March of 98, I had decided that I was afraid of terrorism and that I, I, I don't know French, actually. So I don't know what I was going to be doing. <laughs> but Electra was going to go. And so we were saying our goodbyes in the library, as usual, and, and uh, we walked outside the library, and she started to cry. And I said, well, what's wrong? And she said, my, my mom would be so happy for me. And I hugged her, and I whispered in her ear. I said, have the best time, please. And she pulled back, and she smiled at me. And uh, then she flew away. Somewhere after that, somewhere along the way, she became lost to us. Midway through sophomore year, she took herself away from us, and I never knew why. When I was a, a strange, uncomfortable boy, I met a melancholy, awkward girl. And none of that exists anymore, and that's the story that I tell. It's Christmas lights strung across a barn ceiling, and blasting Madonna and dusty books out of order. And I, and I, I tell it on dates because I want this other person to know that I loved this girl at one time. That happened to me, and maybe it can happen to us. When I moved here, I took a walk around uh, the UPenn campus. I was like looking for Warden, and I, I, I put in headphones and I listened to, to Ray of Light, because that is how I remember her. And that's why I tell this story. The story doesn't end where she ended it. For me, it ends in those car trips, blasting 
music riding around Baltimore. To me, it ends uh, at the prom in a barn. To me, it ends the first time she told me her name. And maybe there's another way the story ends. Maybe there's a million possible universes, a library of, of stories of me and her. And this story that I just told is only one. I tell this story because you left and I'm trying to find you in the faces of strangers. Because I believe that somewhere, still, we're standing outside of a library and you're crying and we're hugging and I'm whispering, have the best time. And you smile at me and anything is possible for anyone, forever. Thank you. Yes, R. Eric Thomas, or Eric, as I know him. So beautiful. And you know, that show from Philadelphia that that story came from, he and I co-hosted that night. And he told the last story of the evening, and I had no idea at the beginning of the night as he and I were reenacting the 1993 Janet Jackson cover of Rolling Stone where someone is holding her boobs. I had no idea when we were reenacting that that he would then end the night telling a story so beautiful, so powerful, so not goofy Janet Jackson reenactment. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And while we've just had a huge change joining Infinite Guest, a lot of other things haven't changed. You can still find us at SoundtrackSeries.com, on Twitter at SoundTRKSeries, on Facebook, our Soundtrack Series fan page, all of that good stuff. But now, most importantly, part of Infinite Guest. So this has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>